Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company today. This is Rabbi Michael Katz here with you. And we are looking at and talking about the days that are ahead, the things that we need to think about, the things we need to talk about on this edition of Judaism 101.9. It's great to be in your company. It's great to be back with you. And I look forward to spending the next 45 minutes or so with you talking about things to do with the basics of Judaism. What we usually do at the beginning of this show is we start off with something about these days. We will then embroider a little bit, go on to uh, the days and dates that are coming up. And then I have a special slot for you today of a story of a great righteous tzaddik, a great person. Um, who we're going to speak about today, who had a great influence on our lives without us even realizing, I suppose. Um, and it's not one of those that we often talk about, but perhaps someone who whose name we may have heard in passing. So we'll leave that in a little bit of suspense until a little bit later on in the show. Let's begin by talking about um, a couple of important um, things that do take place over these days, and that is, first of all, if we look at the 13th of Adar, so that today's the 12th, we go to the 13th 13th of Adar Rishon, which is tomorrow, it marks the Yorzeit, the passing of Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid, Rabbi Yehuda the Pious, as he's known, passed away in 1217. So, of course, that is uh, some time ago, Um, and uh, this great righteous man, this great Yehuda HaChosid, was held in high esteem for his piety, for his saintliness. He also authored a, a sefer called Sefer Chassidim, which is a collection of ethical and halachic teachings that's widely studied even till this day. The Kabbalistic instructions included in his so-called testament are accepted and practiced in many communities. One of the things that Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid gave us, which is of interest, we'll talk about in a moment, is the fact that we should not write in a Torah book that this book belongs to and it has our name. Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid told us not to do that. We'll discuss why in a moment. But let's just uh, fast forward to Friday. Friday, which is the 14th of Adar Rishon, is, according to tradition, the day of Moshe Rabbeinu's bris. He was born on the 7th, so that means that the 14th was the day of the 8th day of his life, the day in which he was circumcised in accordance with the divine command to Avram. Now, of course, there are opinions that Moshe Rabbeinu was not actually circumcised, that there wasn't actually a bris, uh, that he was born circumcised, but it would stand to reason that his father, who was a great rabbi, would still have had to do something um, to uh, mark the fact that his son, uh, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, now became... Moshe now became uh, brisk that he was circumcised on that day, even if it was just the drawing of a drop of blood and the making of the bracha and so on. We imagine that that would have taken place. And that would be the 14th of Adar, which is Friday. Let's come back to Rabbi Yehuda Chosid. Rabbi Yehuda uh, the pious, who, as we said, passed away in 1217 on the 13th of Adar, your site tonight and tomorrow. Um, the interesting thing here is that one of the things that he told us or that he taught us was the idea, the concept of not writing in a Jewish book, in a Torah book, that this book belongs to. Now, 
Um, we do this commonly. People often do. This book belongs to so-and-so, and we put the name. However, it's become a great Jewish tradition that people write, La Hashem Haaretz Umloa, that Hashem, the earth, and all that fills it belongs to God. Or they put an acronym for that, which is, and you may have seen it in our book, Lamed Hey Vav. Lamed Hey Vav, which stands for La Hashem Haaretz Umloa, that the earth and all that fills it belongs to God. Now, we attribute this custom to Rabbi Yudah as we said, because he left us in what he calls his ethical will, that people shouldn't write in a holy book that it is theirs. Rather, they should write their name without writing it is theirs. Why? Because all of Torah belongs to God. How can we actually lay claim, lay claim to Torah? I was once present at a very, very fascinating discussion about laws of copyright. Um, you know, the laws of copyright. Can you um, uh, reprint, just uh, scan, photograph, um, uh, what's it called, uh, photocopy, anything uh, from any Torah book um, in any way? According to the halachic authorities, the one thing that you're not allowed to copy is the format. So the way that it's designed, the format, perhaps even the font, if it's unique, etc. Those things are subject to copyright laws. But the actual content, the content cannot be copyrighted. Why? Because it doesn't belong to us in the first place. So even though I might sit and think that I'm coming up with the most ingenious new chidush, as it's called, a great new um, invention, idea in Torah, in Torah law, in uh, Torah uh, exposition, explanation, and so on, I might think that this is something that I've invented that is great and new, and therefore I should put a copyright on it. No. Uh, teachers, Rabbi Yudah Torah belongs to God. It doesn't belong to anybody. And even if you think you're inventing something new, no. In Torah, there is uh, nothing new under the sun. It all was given to us at Tar It was all there. It just didn't have the opportunity yet to come out. And therefore, this is something that we should do. We should, however, go out of our way, we're told, to lend books to others, and particularly Torah books. Um, you know, a lot of people become a little miserly with their stuff, and we don't want to lend certain things out. Yeah, you wouldn't lend out your toothbrush. They say you shouldn't lend out your suitcase. Uh, there's certain things you don't lend out to other people. It's obvious. We know that um, for all sorts of reasons. But when it comes to Torah book, it is important to lend them around, to make sure that people have access to them. Not everybody has uh, Torah books um, available. And uh, while today everything and just about anything is available online, it can be a Shabbos, it can be a Yom Tov, it can be a time, or perhaps a person doesn't know how to download certain things. Lending people Torah books is a great and a wonderful thing to do. And therefore, you might think, well, I'm going to lend it out. How do I make sure that this person returns it to me? Well, <coughs> we are entitled to write in the book, La Hashem Ha'aretzum Loya, that this book, everything in the world belongs actually to God, and you just put your name. Your name is there, but we should not say that it actually belongs to us. Now, there was an incident um, that's recounted by Rabbi Chia Bar Abba in the Talmud, in the uh, Gemara in Shabbos, uh, where it says, one time I was hosted by a homeowner in Laodicea, and they brought before him a table of gold. It was so heavy, it required 16 people to carry it. And there were 16 chains of silver attached to it. And there were bowls and cups and pitchers and flasks attached to it. And there were all sorts of food and delicacies and fragrant spices on it. And when they placed it there, they would say, the earth 
and all that fills it belongs to God, etc. And when they removed it, they would say, the heavens are God's heavens, but the earth he gave to mankind. And Rashi explains that they would first recite the verse ascribing ownership of earth to God, implying that we may not benefit from this world unless we bless him. They would then recite the second verse, insinuating that it's only through God's largesse that we have this great benefit. By inscribing our Torah books with a declaration that all we have truly belongs to God, we're reminded to always use our possessions for the betterment of others. So this is something that we all should and need to bear in mind always, that when we write something, and this is in um, in uh, deference to and in memory of and because of the great man, your site is tomorrow, Rabbi um, Yehuda Chassid, we should make sure that we do that and think about just what it means. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Yes, this is Rabbi Michael Katz back with you. Apologies for that. Just a little bit of a glitch. Um, but we are back, and I do apologize for the late arrival. Um, it is uh, Wednesday afternoon. It is our second segment here on Judaism 101.9. Thanks for being together with us this afternoon. Now, we mentioned before the break um, about Rabbi Yehuda Achosid and his special um, decree, let's call it, his special invocation that people should not write in a book or anywhere that this belongs to me, especially something of Torah. Um, I want to deal with a few more common ones that are attributed to a great man called Rabbeinu Gershom. Ever heard of Rabbeinu Gershom? Rabbeinu Gershom, um, who lived round about a thousand, uh, one thousand of the common era, so uh, one thousand and twenty years ago odd, um, he brought about various bands, as they know. There were many things called a cheirim. Now, cheirim got a bad name because it was always known for being something where you uh, excommunicated somebody, but actually, it was a ban of any sort. Actually, it was a cheirim. There was a cheirim about various things. One of the things that he instituted were um, rules prohibiting polygamy. Um, until that time, uh, there was all sorts of debate about whether a man could have more than one wife or not, as it is officially permitted according to Torah, he outlawed it. Um, and he also made a ruling requiring the consent of both parties to a divorce, um, where it hadn't been so before. He modified the rules concerning those who became apostates under compulsion. And he also prohibited, here's an interesting one, uh, to come as a postscript, because he prohibited the opening of correspondence addressed to someone else. You know that that is a xera? a cheirem of Rabbeinu Gershom. You're not allowed to open somebody else's mail. You're not allowed to open their letters. You're not allowed to open their emails. You're not allowed to open and look at somebody else's private um, information. Uh, this is something that is um, from a zeta, from a decree of Rabbeinu Gershom. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Rabbeinu Gershom today, if we could spend the next 20 minutes or so um, thinking about and talking about and learning about Rabbeinu Gershom, I'm going to read to you um, the written-up story about Rabbeinu Gershom, if I may, um, and hope that you find it interesting. So it says, if we were to turn back the pages of our history a thousand years and go back to the city of Metz in France, we'd find living there the greatest scholar of that generation, Rabbeinu Gershom, 
Meor Hagola, the light of the exile, as he was known. Rabbi Gershom's teacher was Rabbi Yehuda ben Meir Hakoyen. He was also known as Sir Leofitin of France. At the age of 53, Rabbi Gershom established a great academy in his native town, which attracted the greatest scholars of his time. Amongst his disciples were some of Rashi's principal teachers, notably Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar. Rabbi Gershom, Rabbi Gershom, is well known for his commentaries on the Talmud, which were written down by his disciples. He is also famous for his commentaries on the Bible and for his responser. He also composed Slichus, in which he bewails the tragic position of his brethren. But Romina Gershon is best known for his important Takonis, the laws dealing with social and family life, which he enacted with the approval of the rabbinic authorities of the time and which were accepted by all the Jews of Europe as if they were given on Har Sinai. Among those Takonis, the most well-known are the prohibitions of, as we said, polygamy, and the decree against opening a letter addressed to others. Rabbeinu Gershom's early life is shrouded in legend, takes him across many lands to Bavl, to Babylon, the land of Israel, finally Constantinople, and the story is crammed with adventure. We'll also tell you, um, um, I'll try and fit this in as briefly as possible. Although still a very young man, Rabbeinu Gershom had won great renown for his scholarship and piety, his teacher, Selionitin, as we said before, a very distinguished and learned man, was very fond of his brilliant student. So highly did he esteem him that when Rabbeinu Gershom came of age, he allowed him to marry his lovely daughter, Devorah. Soon after his marriage, one of Rabbeinu Gershom's long-cherished dreams was realized. He and his wife set sail for the distant city of Pompadisa in Babylon, where Rabbi Shira Goen led one of the greatest Torah academies in the world. It was a long and arduous journey full of perils and hardships, but Rabbeinu Gershom was more than compensated for his venture, because in Pompadisa, he spent some of the most tranquil and happy years of his life. Here, all worldly cares were forgotten, and stimulated by the other scholars of the great yeshiva, he devoted himself completely to the study of Torah. The time had come for Rabbeinu Gershom to go out into the world, as was customary among the great scholars, he did not wish to derive any benefit from his knowledge of the Torah by becoming a rabbi, but chose to work as a goldsmith instead. Gershom became a highly skilled goldsmith, settled in Constantinople, which at that time was a great metropolis and the trading center of the East. One day a terrible fire broke out in the city of Constantinople. Cruel tongues of flame devoured the city at a furious pace leaving in their wake utter ruin. No sooner was the fire extinguished when a vicious plague swept the city. Everywhere, victims lay sick and dying. Rabbi Gershom could no longer sit by and watch the suffering of his fellow men. As he had studied medicine in his youth, he once again took up his noble profession. With selfless devotion, untiring solicitude, he tended the sick and the dying. Day and night, he ministered to the unfortunate victims of this plague. During that period, they ruled over the land a king named Basil. Basil was a just man, but weak-willed and often misled by his advisors and ministers. Among them, a very sly and wicked fellow named John. John, without just cause, hated Jews bitterly, <clears throat> seems to ring a bell, was constantly seeking an opportunity to transform this hate into actual deeds. The king had called a conference of all his ministers to decide how to cope with the present emergency. 
John couldn't resist this opportunity to malign the Jews. Your Majesty, the Jews are to blame for the fire. Let's get rid of them. Or they get, let's get rid of them from this country. On and on, the cruel John spoke until he finally persuaded the king to issue a decree which would confiscate all Jewish property and exile the Jews. Heard the story before, haven't we? Soon afterwards, the king's daughter fell in. From near and far, the greatest physicians of the realm flocked to the palace to try to cure the king's daughter, future heiress to the throne. But it was all to no avail. None of them could cure her. There the child lay in a little bed, growing paler and weaker each day. No one could help her. Only Gershon heard of the sick princess and sent out for the palace. But he told the guards of his intention to cure the king's daughter, was ushered into the king's presence, which was succeed. If you cure the princess, I'll reward you generously. But if you fail, you'll forfeit your head. They quietly filed into the room of the little princess. After Rabbeinu Gershon had examined the princess, he realized how hopelessly ill she really was. Nothing could save her from except a miracle from God. Rabbeinu Gershon began to pray to God with all his heart. Show me the way, dear God, to help the sick girl. Grant me wisdom, O oh God, for the sake of your people. Rabbeinu Gershon proceeded to cure the little girl. Soon, the color came back to her cheeks. Her eyes began to show some life in them, and each day she gained new strength. When the little princess finally stepped out, on the terrace. For the first time after her long illness, the king and the queen were overjoyed. They could scarcely believe their eyes. Full of gratitude to Rabbeinu Gershon for all that he had done, the king said, I'll give you an immense fortune. You'll be so rich that you'll never have to work for your living. And you'll be able to spend all the days of your life in ease and luxury. Rabbeinu Gershon humbly replied, The king, I have no desire for riches. For me, the greatest reward would be the withdrawal of the decree against the Jews. The king was greatly impressed by Rabbeinu Gershom's selflessness and promised to fulfill his request. A few days later, the decree was annulled and Rabbeinu Gershom became even more beloved by his people than ever before. Since Rabbeinu Gershom cured the princess, he and the king became good friends. The two spent many hours together in conversation. One day, Rabbeinu Gershom happened to tell the king of Solomon's wonderful throne of gold. Basil, knowing Rabbeinu Gershom to be only a gold, also a goldsmith of note, asked him to fashion such a throne for him. Rabbeinu Gershom was reluctant to take the responsibility for the construction of the throne. I can't vouch for the honesty of the workmen, my king, he said. The king waved all the protests aside. I trust you implicitly and I have no doubt of your ability. And so Rabbeinu Gershom undertook the construction of the throne for the king. There not being enough gold in the king's treasury, the chair was to be fashioned of silver. You can imagine how involved and intricate the throne was. It took a skilled an artist, an artisan, as Rabbeinu Gershom, several years to construct. And when he finally completed it, what a great ado there was. The state room was rebuilt to house the huge throne. A great festival was arranged to celebrate the presentation of the throne to the king. From near and far, people came to the palace to see the wonderful throne with their own eyes. Exclamations of wonder and admiration could be heard absolutely everywhere. Suddenly, the royal trumpets began to blow, heralding the approach of the king. The crowd parted to make way for him. As the king began to ascend the throne, he became confused by the moment of the hidden mechanism, by the movement, sorry, the hidden mechanism, and also Rabbeinu Gershom to ascend before him so that he might see it in motion. Rabbeinu Gershom willingly obliged. An awed silence fell over the assembly never before, and they seemed such a magnificent and almost incredible spectacle. There were six silver steps that led to the throne. On each step, there were two different animals cast of silver. As Rabbeinu Gershom ascended each step, the animals would extend a foot 
to support him. And when he had reached the last step, a huge eagle of silver brought the crown and held it over his head. When the Rabbi Gershom was thus seated with the crown over his head, courtiers and guests who until then had been too overcome with surprise after a single syllable, they broke out into wild cheers and applause. Everybody praised Rabbi Gershom's ingenuity and skill. When Rabbi Gershom descended, the king thanked him and proceeded to mount the throne. John, the king's slime minister, was green with envy at Rabbi Gershom's huge success and growing popularity. And day and night, he pondered a way to defame and ruin the blameless rabbi. And one day, he finally succeeded in devising a scheme. Coming before the king, he asked, My king, how do you know that Rabbi Gershom has not stolen any silver from the state treasury? How can you be certain that all the silver is taken has gone into the construction of the throne? Let's weigh the throne and ascertain the truth. John was almost sure that the workmen had stolen silver, but he would blame Gershom and have his revenge. The king agreed to John's plan, but there was one great obstacle. There was no scale that could weigh the throne. From far and near, the greatest engineers came to weigh the throne, but none of them succeeded. The only way to weigh it, they said, was to take it apart, and they would not be responsible for the mechanism. Although Rabbi Gershom was a very happy man, his heart was filled with sorrow because he had no children. His wife, Devorah, told him to take a second wife so that he might one day have a child. The other woman had many close acquaintances in the royal household. She knew too that Rabbeinu Gershom was the only person in the entire kingdom who knew how to weigh the throne that he himself had built. Using every persuasion and while, she finally succeeded in coaxing the truth from her husband. It's really very simple, said Rabbeinu Gershom. All one has to do is take a boat and mark the waterline on the hull. After placing the throne in the boat, you mark the new waterline. When the throne is removed, one has to fill the boat with as many stones as are required to reach the second waterline. All you have to do then is weigh the stones, and you'll know how much the, the throne weighs. No sooner had she obtained this information, and she hastened to divulge it to one of her acquaintances at the palace. And when the throne was weighed in this fashion, John's accusation proved to be true. The king sent for Rabbi Gershom and informed him, informed him of the charge against him. But Rabbi Gershom answered, did I not tell you, the king, the king, that I would not vouch for any of my workmen's honesty? Surely I'm not to blame if they'd stolen some silver. It was of no avail. The king was completely dominated by John and condemned Rabbeinu Gershom to die unless he chose to accept Christianity. Naturally, Rabbeinu Gershom could not hear of this and preferred to die. But because he had once saved the king's daughter, he was given the privilege of being treated as a political prisoner rather than a common thief. Instead of being hanged, He'd be conveyed to an isolated tower in the desert. And there, without any food or drink, he would starve to death. The next morning, high in the tower, Rabbeinu Gershom heard the sound of a woman's cry. Leaning out through the window, he saw his faithful wife, Vera. In a tearful voice, she said, I've come to die with you. I'm glad you have come, Rabbeinu Gershom replied, and not to die with me. We will live happily, but you will help me escape. Listen carefully. Find a woodworm and a beetle. Get some silk thread, cord and rope. Tie the silk thread around the beetle, then tie the cord to the silk thread, and tie the rope to the cord. The worm crawl up the side of the tower, and the beetle will pursue it, bringing the rope up to me. But a week later, John awoke from his restless sleep one night, thinking of Rabbeinu Gershom. I'll steal out into the desert, and since he's surely dead, I will have the great satisfaction of gloating over my enemy's remains, thought John to himself. Long with the keys to the tower, John climbed up the stairs of the tower and opened the cell. Imagine how astonished he was to find the cell empty. 
no son of Rabbeinu Gershon, but to his excitement, made one great blunder. He closed the door, forgetting he had left the key outside. And when he finally recovered from his shock and disappointment and turned to go, the door was firmly bolted. No amount of heaving and pushing could force it open. There in the same prison that he had prepared for Rabbeinu Gershon, John knew he was held captive and he would perish of starvation. Well, unbeknownst to all, John lay rotting in the tower of Enu Gershom, standing on the deck of a sailing boat for the welcoming shores of his native land, drawing nearer and nearer. He went to Mainz, where he was welcomed with great respect and honor. There he established and directed the first yeshiva ever to be founded on the Rhine, the Or Hagola, Light of the Exile, a truly fitting title for this great man. Enu Gershom, with his wisdom and love of Torah, God and man, was a beacon of light in those dark years and for all generations thereafter. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Of course, this coming Friday and Shabbos are known as Purim Katan and Shushan Purim Katan. Now, we know that Purim comes about once a year, and when it does, it brings with great joy, great merrymaking, great simcha. And a story not dissimilar to the one we told about Rabbein Gershom about the plotting with the king to try and overthrow us all. But when we think about Purim, we know that Purim has to be in the month of Adar. Now, the month of Adar sometimes is doubled, as we've explained before. Sometimes there are two months of Adar. So the question is, in which month do we celebrate Purim? The Talmud tells us that Purim needs to be close to Pesach. So it's exactly a month before Pesach, so that we have a smichut, we have a, a familiarity and a togetherness and a closeness between one kind of gula, the redemption of Purim, and the redemption of Pesach. So it happens exactly one month before. So we've got the answer there that Purim always needs to be in the second month of Adar. But what happens in the first month of Adar? There is like an imprint of Purim on the days of Purim that it would have been had it just been one month of Adar. So had today, had this uh, week just already been in the uh, regular year, it would have been put in this coming week. This coming Friday would have been put in. But since it isn't, we have an impression on the day and we call it Purim Katan. What happens? It's a day on which we do not say penitential prayers, we don't say Tachanun. That would happen on Friday. Of course, it spills over to Shabbos as well and it will affect certain things in our davening where. Uh, it says there on a weekday where you wouldn't say Tachanun, we don't say those things, Avarachamim and so on, in our prayers. For those of you who know what we're talking about, the penitential prayers are cut out, but it means that the overlay of the day is an impression of simcha, of joy, added simcha. Now, we're in a time of simcha. It's a time of joy, time of positive thought, a time of positive energy. But particularly when it comes to these days, the days of Purim Katan, there's an imprint of the power of the simcha, of the um, uh, absolute turnover of time that happened in the time of Haman and Achashverosh in the story of Purim, even on these days, on Friday and on Shabbos, that is Purim Katan and Shushan Purim Katan, lining up with Purim and Shushan Purim, which are going to be occurring in just a month from now, on the 14th and 15th of Adar Shemi. And then, believe it or not, it's just one month to go after that. To Pesach. So we are uh, looking forward to these days of joy, these extra days of Simcha. And of course, they are added to the 60 days of Simcha, 
60 days of joy and positive energy that we have in these two months, Adar Rishon, first Adar, and the second Adar. So let's use our time well, and let's use the time of positive energy. Let's be happy. Let's be more positive. Let's utilize all of this time of Simcha. Um, we know that the Baal Shem Tov taught that true happiness is the high road to God. Serve God with happiness, sings the psalmist. And the Baal Shem Tov explained the happiness itself is your service of God. Be back with you to sum up right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. The question that we have at this time and at times like this is, can we dictate happiness? Can you tell yourself to be happy? Can we instruct ourselves to be happy? It seems logically that that's an impossibility. What if I'm sad? What if I'm depressed? What if I'm looking around the world and I see all of these things of sadness and all of these things of, of real, real problems, issues for our people, for Am Yisrael, for Eretz Yisrael, for what's going on in Israel? This is not a cause for happiness. But Torah actually tells us that we can. We need to instruct happiness. We need to instruct ourselves to be positive. We need to instruct ourselves to be happy. We need to force ourselves, honestly, to not to be bouncing around and jumping on the tables and dancing, I guess, but we need to instruct ourselves to have a positive disposition, a positive outlook. And why? Because we know that everything is in God's hands. We don't always understand it. We can't always wrap our heads around it. We can't always fathom exactly what it is that God is trying to do or the reasons for anything and everything. We will never know for the majority of these things as to why they happened. That's not our business. That's God, God's business. Our business is to know that we have a job to do. We have a positive energy that we need to tap into. If to et Hashem b'simcha, Torah tells us that we need to serve God with joy. Now, that's an instruction. And it doesn't say serve God with joy when you're feeling like it or serve God with joy when you're not feeling down or when you're not in a depression or when you're not thinking about sad and bad things. It says serve God with joy. And therefore, when it comes to these months of Adar, it says, Marbim Basimcha. It doesn't say be joyous. It says increase in joy. In other words, the bottom line is joy. It has to be there all the time. Joy, happiness, positive energy, a positive disposition, a smiling face. All of those things have to be there all the time. When it comes to the month of Adar, and particularly in the build-up to these days of Purim Katan and then on to Adar Shemi and Purim itself, is we need to lift the bar. We need to raise the energy level. We need to lift up that simcha, and we need to be much more positive in everything and in anything that we do. There are many things that create simcha. The learning of Torah creates simcha. The unity of people, the love of each other, creates simcha. So let's go out there and create as much simcha, as much joy, as much happiness as we possibly can in order to counteract the negativity, in order to counteract the uh, darkness. Let's make light in order to counteract the negativity. Let's make positivity in order to counteract the sadness. Let's just be happy. So we look forward to a great, happy uh, rest of this week, a great Shabbos up ahead, time of Purim Katan on Friday and Shabbos. Uh, please, God, they should be happy too. 
And we look for that happiness, that joy, that positive energy to overrun everything and make sure that everything in our lives and in our world and for Jews everywhere and for Eretz Yisrael, for the land of Israel, for Am Yisrael, for the Jewish people everywhere should be a time of great happiness. Please God, very, very soon we should be able to herald the arrival of Mashiach Tikkeinu, of our righteous Redeemer, may come speedily in our time. Look back. Look forward to being back with you again next week, same time, same place, on another episode of Judaism 101.9.